Um, well, I'm reading, can I read Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 1 to 17, but I'm, I'm going to ask, I'm just going to be focusing in this message on, on verse 3. So, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the stranger who is in within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this first commandment, Lord, I am conscious of my weakness and my frailty and my ability to communicate these things. to proclaim your glories. Lord, I am weak and frail to obey this commandment. I cannot do this, let alone preach it, unless your spirit is at work in my heart. Lord, likewise, we are all weak and frail. We cannot, we cannot obey this commandment in and of ourselves. Lord, we will never obey this commandment in its fullness. But Lord, we are desperate for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to bring this word, your word to bear even now. Lord, help us, I pray, to get a glimpse of, of who you are and to worship you, to adore you, to love you, to serve you in a way that, that fits with who you are. And Lord, help us to turn away from every idolatrous worship in our hearts. Lord, help us to turn to Christ, 
who obeyed in the fullness, but was punished as one who had failed at every point, who lived for us and died for us out of love for you and love for your church. Holy and sovereign God, work your word in our hearts even now. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. A young man approached Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the man asked, which ones? And Jesus told him, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the man, burning with misguided self-confidence and self-righteousness, replied, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Well, Jesus, knowing full well what was in the man's heart, now pressed the point home. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But the man who was very wealthy walked away from Jesus. Nowhere in the scriptures are we commanded to sell everything and give it to the poor. Jesus was making a point. He was saying that salvation comes from God. That there is only salvation in God. Jesus goes on to say in verse 26 that, that not only for the rich, but for all people, salvation is impossible apart from from God. Jesus was demonstrating that we do not gain eternal life through our obedience to the commandments. And it's a good thing because none of us have kept the commandments. This young man thought that he was obeying the commandments, but Jesus was showing him that he hadn't even kept the first commandment. The man was, was covetous, which is indeed the focus of the 10th the commandment. But covetousness reveals idolatry. Paul says in Colossians 3.5 that, that covetousness is idolatry. This rich young man is an example of idolatry if ever I have seen one. Here was God incarnate inviting the man to follow him. But the man chose his money over God. Friends, not all idols are made of wood and stone. Not all idols are objects you bow down before. Idols are things that you worship above or beside God. Hercules Collins, in his Orthodox Catechism, it's a, a Baptist adaptation of the Heidelberg Catechism, asked the question, what is idolatry? Answer, 
Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Is there, is there anything that you trust, trust in or place alongside of the only true God? Now, I can't see into your heart like Jesus could into the heart of that rich young man, but I can confident, confidently assert that there are idols in your heart. Calvin perceptively called the human heart a factory of idols. We constantly, we constantly fabricate idols and churn out idols. This reminds us, doesn't it, of the, the importance of the Ten Commandments because they show us God's moral nature and God's moral will and they reveal our moral failure and our need for Christ. Friends, the Ten Commandments are just as relevant today as they were when they were spoken by God to the people of Israel and written in stone by the finger of God and given to Moses as part of the Mosaic Covenant. The Ten Commandments are just as relevant today as they were when they were written on the heart of Adam and given to him in the Garden of Eden as part of the covenant of works. The moral law, along with the, the civil and ceremonial law, have been abolished as a legal covenant. None of it functions as Old Testament Old Covenant law anymore because we are no longer under the Old Testament. We are no longer under the Old Covenant. We are under the New Covenant in Christ's blood. We are not required to obey the moral law as part of the Old Covenant. Yet, the moral law still has a vital purpose today. But the, the distinction is not between the the. The distinction isn't between the, the, the requirements of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The difference is not in the requirements. The distinction is, is between the use of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The moral law still serves as a mirror to show us our need for Christ and as a rule of life to show us how God would have us live. When the commandment is given, it is not Moses who is speaking. It is Yahweh, the Lord. God spoke these words. Now, of course, all of the scriptures are the word of God, and we must seek to understand the enduring truths that apply to us and how they apply from God's word. As Paul wrote in, 15, in Romans 15.4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And similarly in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when Jesus came in, in, the, the, in the new covenant, as, a, as the mediator of the new covenant, he did, not he did not diminish the requirements of the law under the new covenant. In fact, he amplified them. 
in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking of the, the man-made traditions of the law that were taught by the Pharisees, Jesus repeatedly said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant in his blood. But again, in establishing the new covenant, he did not change the morality of the old covenant. He showed what it really meant. And through Jesus' life and his ministry, he emphasized the importance of each of the Ten Commandments and corrected the false teaching of the Pharisees on each of the Ten Commandments. Now, some people might be uncomfortable with the study of the Ten Commandments because of, of concerns about legalism. That, that we're going to attempt to use our obedience to the law in order to earn favor with God. I get that. That is a, a very real and serious concern. Legalism is a false gospel. Legalism is no gospel at all. But I want to put to you that, that through the study of the Ten Commandments, we actually have a solution to legalism. The, the study of the commandments is not the problem. In learning from God's word what is really required by the moral law, you, you begin to have an understanding that there is no way that you could ever obey what is required of you. And so it leads you to Christ as you realize your guilt and the need for a substitute. One who could live the life that you could never live. One who died the death that you deserve to die. Similarly, people might be concerned that a study of the Ten Commandments could lead to Phariseeism. Now, Phariseeism is distinguished from legalism in that not only is it an attempt to earn righteousness through obedience, but it's actually adding to what God requires. This is an adding to the law and binding people's consciences to commands that have no place in the life of the believer. Once again, I don't believe that the problem here is, is studying the Ten Commandments. Rather, by teaching what the moral law really teaches, people are freed from unbiblical commands. So then we need to study the Ten Commandments. We need to study the Ten Commandments because we want to know what God wants us to do and what God doesn't want us to do. The moral law was written on the heart of man at creation, but like the image of God in which we are made has been effaced by sin. Sin has effaced the command. The command has been marred so that it is no longer, longer clear. People's consciences have been, become so seared by sin that the moral law has been obscured. But then in the new covenant, God has once again written the law on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33. God has revealed it also to us in his word. So God wants to make his moral requirements abundantly clear. It is vitally important to know what God wants us to do. But it is also vitally important for us to know why God wants us to do it. You delight in the love of God. You delight in the grace of God and the, and the holiness of God. At least, I hope you do. But God wants you also to delight in the law of God. Psalm 1-2. In fact, delighting in the law of God is a powerful way to help you to, to delight in the love, grace, and holiness of God. 
So like the first petition of the model prayer is, hallowed be your name. And as that first petition of the model prayer lays the foundation for the other petitions, the first commandment lays the foundation for the other commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is about our relationship with God. The other nine commandments are about how that relationship works out in the life of the believer. Because of who God is, he has the right to make demands of us. He has the right to, to command us to worship him and to worship him alone. He has a right to command us to obey the other nine commandments as well as part of that worship. God is the ultimate objective lawgiver. We do not rely on our own opinions or on the majority opinion. We rely on what God has revealed to us in his word. Because Western culture has, has largely thrown off the first commandment, the other nine have been rejected as well. But because we seek to obey the first commandment, we seek to obey the other nine too. So first of all, notice who is addressed in the first commandment. You. You are to have no other gods besides me. Well, who are you? Well, the you in Exodus 23 is the over 2.5 million people of Israel who are gathered around the foot of Mount Sinai after the Lord had delivered them from Egypt. They are the ones who the, to whom the Lord declared in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The, the Lord promised Israel that he would make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation nation if they kept the covenant spoiler alert they didn't but peter in the new testament echoes the same promise calling us as the church a kingdom of priests and a holy nation not because we kept the covenant but because someone else did the you in verse 3 is in the first person. To each of the 2.5 million people of Israel gathered on that day, and to us who are here as well in our context, the Lord spoke to each one and is speaking to each one personally. As though they're the only ones there. God is speaking to you personally. As though you are the only one here, you shall have no other gods before God. You personally have an obligation to obey this command. As we said repeatedly, you aren't them. You aren't Old Testament Israel. The you in Exodus 23 is not the same you as who are those who are here today. You weren't one of the children of Israel who was gathered around Mount Sinai. The Lord had delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt. It was the least that they could do to worship him alone. But the Lord hasn't delivered you from bondage in Egypt. 
Instead, he has delivered you from an immeasurably worse bondage. If you are here as a Christian this morning, you have been delivered from bondage to sin, death, and the devil. You have also been set free from the curse of the law. You are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Law as a legal covenant, again, has been abrogated. It, it has been fulfilled and it has finished its purpose along with the civil and the ceremonial law. It served its purpose in guarding Israel and setting them apart until Christ would come. It has served its purpose in pointing to Christ. So the Mosaic Law as covenant law, as old covenant law, is no longer valid. But unbelievers are still under its moral demands for they are under the covenant of works, the command that says, do this and live. Unbelievers are still in Adam under his federal headship, under, under him and dead in their trespasses and sins. And I hope that does not apply to you. Because if you are a Christian, you are not under the old covenant law at all. You are under the new covenant in Christ. You are under new covenant law. The content of the new covenant law has been written again on your heart. Jeremiah 31, 33. The, the moral law is on you, as John Owen said, by the grace of the new covenant. But either way, for believer or for unbeliever, the content of God's moral law is the same for it reflects the moral character and will of God. And so God keeps the first commandment. He upholds the, the glory of his name, this representation of his essence, of his character, of, of who he is. Isaiah 48, 11, he says, for, I, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Similarly, in Ezekiel 39, 25, I will be jealous for my holy name. God is not an idolater. God will judge idolatry in all of his creatures. But Christian, God has delivered you from idolatry. God has delivered you from idolatry. Why would you put your faith in any other so-called God? Why would you love any other so-called God? Why would you worship any other so-called God? Because you have been delivered by God. The one true God, the only God, the only one who is worthy of your affection and your worship. John Colquhoun, in his Treatise on the Law and the Gospel, explains that where a duty is required, a contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is required. So when we look at these commands, there is, in a sense, there's a, a positive and a negative sense. There's a do and there's a don't. So let's focus first on the, the do, the, the positive requirements. What are the positive requirements that are contained in the first commandment? 
And question 52 of Benjamin Keach's Baptist Catechism asks, what is required in the first commandment? Answer, the first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. So the first part of the first commandment, it requires us to acknowledge God as the only true God. It's to have faith in the one true God. The reformers described three elements of faith. What we believe, conviction that the content of our faith is true, and personal trust and reliance of the one in whom we believe. So to know God as the only true God is, is it the catechism deals with. Here's the, the first two elements of faith. It, it's, it's what we believe and the conviction that what we believe is true. Edward Fisher, in his excellent The Marrow of Modern Divinity, presents these truths as a form of a, a conversation between Neophytus, a, a new believer, and Evangelista, who's discipling him. Neophytus asks, what is the duty of our understanding as to the nature of God? Evangelista responds, the duty of our understanding is to know God. Now the end of knowledge is but the fullness of persuasion even a settled belief which is called faith. So that the duty of our understanding is to know God as to believe Him according as He has revealed Himself to us in His word and works. So it's to know God to be the only true God. And so when God commands us to have no other gods, we are to know and believe that there is no other God. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he, he's not saying that there's other gods that, that you, can, you can stack them up compared to. He's saying that there is no other God. As we, we saw in Isaiah 44, an idol is nothing. There are no other gods. So obedience to the first commandment is assent to the truth of monotheism. Mono, only, theism, God. There is only one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, as we see throughout the Scripture. Assent and belief in the first commandment is to believe in the three-in-one God who is declared to us in the Scriptures. Obedience to the first commandment also means to know and believe that He is the way that He is described in Scriptures as far as His as attributes. Now, I could spend a lifetime of, of sermons talking about the attributes of God and, and still only scratch the surface of who God is. I, I preached on the attributes of God twice. You're going to spend eternity contemplating the attributes of God. And so I really would, would recommend to you to, ch to check out chapter 2 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession. The Westminster Confession and the, the Savoy Declaration are also an excellent overview. But let me just read the, the first paragraph of chapter 2 of the 1689. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, 
incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of him that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, Friends, any time you doubt any of these things of who God is and a host of others as presented in Scripture, you are breaking this commandment. If you doubt God's love for you in the gospel, you are breaking this commandment. If you question God's sovereignty over your salvation, you are breaking this commandment. If you fear that God's providence for you will not be good, you are breaking God's commandment. In fact, every time you grumble or complain, you are breaking this commandment. Anything less than perfect knowledge of who God is and perfect assent to who God is is breaking the first commandment. So this, this study of who God is, it requires lifelong study of God through His Word and His works. Now you study hard for your exams, and so you should. But how hard should you study who God is? You work hard at your job or at caring for your family, and so you should. But how hard do you work at growing in the knowledge of who God is? So in the first requirement, God requires that we believe Him to be who He is as presented to us in the Scriptures and that we see also in His work. Next, the first commandment requires that He is to be our God. It's not enough just to believe the facts about who God is. The devils even believe and shudder, James 2.19. So to obey the first commandment is to have God for your God. It's not enough just to, to come to the church where, where it is declared that God is God. Children, it's, it's not enough just to have parents who have God as their God. God has to be your God personally. God had declared to Israel from Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God. Yet most of Israel did not have God as their God. Are you here as a Christian this morning? Has God delivered you from bondage to sin and death and the devil? God is God, but is He your God? And this is now the third element of faith, this, this personal trust in God. It's not just believing and assenting to the facts of who God is, but putting your hope and your confidence and your faith in Him personally as your Lord and your Savior. This is what it means to have God as your God. So the first requirement requires, that, that the first commandment requires that you know who God is, that you believe who God is, and that you have faith in Him. The first, the first commandment requires that you worship and glorify Him accordingly. 
Just think about this for a second. Worship God and glorify Him accordingly. Worship God in a way that is compatible with who He is. Think back to that list that I just quoted from the 1689. God is almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His will, for His own glory, most, love, most loving, gracious, merciful, and long-suffering. How can you possibly worship that God in a way that is compatible with who He is? And that's just a snapshot. When you consider who God really is, how on earth could you possibly worship and glorify Him accordingly? You have never done this as you should. I haven't either. None of us ever have. But for those who are born again, followers of Jesus Christ, we worship and glorify Him by thinking about Him, meditating on Him, honoring Him, loving Him, choosing Him, desiring Him, fearing Him, believing Him, trusting Him, hoping in Him, rejoicing in Him, submitting to Him, obeying Him, praising Him, giving thanks to Him, and, and many more things. This is how we do it. Now it's all done imperfectly. It's all done in a way that is immeasurably, falls immeasurably short of that perfection that God requires of us. But nonetheless, we as Christians make that our aim. We make it our goal to, to worship God in a way that lines up with who He is. Worshiping Him accordingly. Trusting that there was another, one who did this in our place, one who died in our place as an idolater. So how then, how then do we, how do we begin to do this? How do we, we seek to, we want to do this, well how do we seek to do this? Well we worship and glorify God by loving Him. Again, when, when Jesus was asked what, what the greatest commandment is, he was quoting, he quoted from the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Kevin DeYoung says that love is at the heart of the command. God is a jealous God. He is jealous for the glory of his name. But he is also jealous for our affections. In a traditional wedding, the, the groom will vow to forsake all others and cleave only to his bride. Well, in, the sake of, in the case of the gospel, you are the bride. Christ is the husband. He has declared that he would cleave to you. And in response, as the bride to the husband, you say, I will forsake all others and cleave only to to you. God wants your love exclusively. What competes with your love for God? Money, success, 
pleasure, sports, health, your family. Well, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves, they, they, but they all must have their proper place. I think most of us would, would say in this room that the thing that we, we love most in this world is our family, our, our spouse, our parents, or our children. But even that love must be submitted to a love for God and have its proper place under our love for God. In fact, Jesus spoke in the strongest of terms in Luke 14, 26, when he said that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is hyperbole. Jesus is not saying here that you literally have to hate them. Because in many other cases, we're, we're commanded to, to love the people that God has placed in our lives. What he's saying here is that you, you need to love him immeasurably more. So much more, in fact, that your love for the other people in your life is hatred in comparison. This is what God requires of us. And again, we fall woefully short. We worship God by, by fearing Him. We're told in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of, Lord is the, of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is not abject fear. This is holy reverence. It's, it's that we don't want to offend God in any way. In Western culture, this, this kind of res respect for authority, for parents and, and for police and, and for the government was, was more common, but it's, it's largely been, been rejected. We're going to talk more about this when we get to the first commandment. But the fear of God is, is virtually gone in our culture. But we are told in Matthew 10, 28, as, as God's people, so do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is part of the, the first commandment. It's having a, a holy fear of God. We worship God by obeying him. If, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. We worship God by trusting in him alone. Again, what other things do you trust in? What makes you happy? What, what, what makes you feel fulfilled uh, above God? What's your focus? Where do you spend your time on? Where do you spend your resources on? In, in, those, in those quiet moments, where, where does your mind naturally go to? Well, we praise God that at least some of the time it goes to God. And that's, you can take comfort if that's happening in your life. It's, it's, it's a, a mark of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. But we need to acknowledge that, that so often our hearts and our affections and our resources go elsewhere. And they show that we're not trusting in God alone, that we're trusting in other things. But there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 4, 5. Hebrews 1.3, that, that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father but through me. The definite article, the, the way, the truth, the life, is exclusive. He's the only way. 
The only way to the Father is through Christ. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now I trust that most, if not all of us, here would acknowledge the truths of, of what is being presented here. The exclusivity of Christ as the only Savior. But I wonder... Do you, in the way that you live your life, in the practical day by day, reveal idols in your heart? You're not saved by having respectable or successful children. You're not saved by having a happy marriage. You're not saved by entertainment or by holidays or by your career or having a healthy lifestyle. You're not saved by keeping the commandments. You're saved only by the one who did, Jesus Christ who obeyed every commandment perfectly. He's the only one who fulfilled all of the commandments. He's the only one who loved the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he did it all the time. He did it in his, in his incarnation, and he's done it for all eternity. Your only hope is through the imputation of Christ's righteousness, the one who lived that life for you. When you put your faith in Him, His righteousness, all of His perfect obedience is credited to your account. You still seek to obey the, the command, but as one who has been saved by the one who kept the command for you. I want to spend a few minutes before we close on the negative prohibition on what the command forbids. Again, from the Baptist Catechism, what is forbidden in the first commandment? The first commandment forbids the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving that worship to, and glory to another, to any other who is due unto him alone. So the command forbids you from giving the love, worship, obedience, and faith that is due to God alone to anything or anyone other than God. So you see that? The positive, there was a positive sense of, of what you must do, and now the negative is what you must not do, what you, you are forbidden from doing. You are forbidden from giving anything to anyone or to giving anything to, to or anyone or anything to, that belongs to God alone. All that is God's, he calls his own. You can't give anything that's his to something or someone else. A.W. Pink describes several ways in which, in which this happens. First, by willful ignorance of God and His will through despising those means by which we may acquaint ourselves with Him. So the means that God has given are, are His Word. When we, when we refuse to look to God's Word in order to determine what God's decree is, and in order to, to fail to look to who God is from His Word, so we're denying His character and His will from the word, we are breaking the first commandment. Second, he says that, that atheism or the denial of God is a, is a breaking of this commandment. Any time, in any way, whether it's, it's outright atheism, which is there's a particularly um, aggressive atheism that is, is, is evident in our culture, whether it's that, or whether it's a practical atheism, just living as though there is no God. If, you, if you're facing a trial 
and, and your hope and your confidence, say it's a physical trial, and your hope or your confidence are, are in, in a, the medical professionals, and not in God. You're living like a practical atheist. Now, we, we live in a, in a day where we have been, been given the, the, the medical system as a means of grace, but our focus is not to be on them, but on God. If, you're, if you're, your hope for your, your, well, or your, for your well-being is, is, in, is in getting a raise or a better job, instead of in God, you're living as a practical atheist. Or, or if you're in marriage strife, Yes, it's right to want to get out of that situation, to, not to get out of the marriage, but to get out of the strife of that marriage. But if your focus is on fixing your marriage, your hope is in that, not on God, then you're living as a practical atheist. Third, idolatry is the setting up of false or fictitious gods. And, and we have a, a plethora of them in our culture. All those, those false gods, the temple around the corner, in fact, many churches who have rejected the gospel are really no better off than a pagan temple. Fourth, disobedience and self-will or the open defiance of God. Every time we do what we want to do instead of what God tells us to do, we are breaking the first commandment. And then fifth, all inordinate and immoderate affections, the setting up of our hearts and minds upon other objects. You might not bow down to Baal or Ashtoreth or Buddha or Allah. But again, Allah, but what are the idols of your heart? You love your child, but you can't love your child more than God. Would you sin to protect your child? Would you sin in a relationship to protect that relationship? If so, you're breaking the first commandment. Or in your study or your, your work, if you should be diligent in those things, but you can't seek them above God. Does, I wonder, does your work or your study keep you away from church, especially on Sundays? If it does, you're breaking the first commandment. So how then do we grow in our obedience to the first commandment? Well, by the means that God has provided. By his word, as we study and read and meditate and put into practice the, practice the things that we see in God's word. Through prayer, as we earnestly entreat God, asking him to forgive us for our failure to keep the first commandment and for asking him to help us to obey the first commandment. By fellowship, as you, as you spend time with, with other mature believers and, and even immature believers, and seeking to spur each other on to love and good deeds. This is a way you can grow in your obedience to the first commandment. But the most powerful way that you can grow in your obedience to the first commandment is by realizing that you haven't kept this commandment. And not only by turning to him who did keep it, but by turning to him who died as an idolater by turning to Jesus Christ who died for all of the idolatry that you have ever committed that you ever would commit. The, the law reveals our sin and points us to the Savior. 
It's not as Kevin DeYoung says that Jesus doesn't say, if you obey my commandments, I will love you. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Don't get that backwards. Our understanding of who God is and his command to worship and to glorify him accordingly and our understanding of our failure to do so by turning to the one who did, who obeyed in our place and who died in our place, fills us with love for God. It's because of the gospel that we seek to have no other gods before God. It's because of the gospel that we seek to obey all of God's commandments. We aren't saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. Let me close with the words of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the work of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Glorious God, what a privilege it is to know you through your word, through your, your work, as you have revealed yourself to us in your Son. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look to your word. Lord, to seek to understand who you are and what you require of us from your word, cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, trusting in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our sinless substitute. Lord, help us to smash every idol in our hearts because we love you and we want to serve you because we're thankful to you because we don't want there to be anything that would compete for our attention and our affections for you. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.